this has been uh, such a fruitful season of getting to preach and getting to walk alongside as we start the year and move into the season of Lent now. It's so encouraging and fun to get to see Pastor Frank up here talking about what God is doing at Connect Church um, and realizing that it's been almost three years now, which sounds crazy. He has a whole other human life produced from him and Rachel, and another one just about to be born pretty soon. So um, that is crazy um, what God is producing and building. Um, in this season of Lent, we do encourage you to be pressing in, pressing into God's voice and presence in your life, repenting of the way we try to control and make our own little kingdoms, and turning towards the presence of Jesus. In this series, we've been focusing on that at the beginning of the year, what it looks like in our Bible reading, what it looks like in prayer, and then this final three weeks, what it looks like in our practical lives, in our time, in our body, and with our money as well. What does Jesus have to say about what we do with our day-to-day lives? In Bible and prayer, we're trying to get our minds right. It's almost like a Pauline letter. The beginning of it is all doctrine and theology. This is who Jesus is. This is how it works. And then now in the latter portion, it's like the end of a Paul letter where he's like, now this is what you need to do. This is what your life should look like. This is why you should forgive that person. This is what we are talking about. Today, as we talk about body, I want you to know I am right there with you as we talk about the complexity of being a human, having these bodies, trying to honor God in them and live in them in a world and community that's telling us a million different things about how we should feel about these bodies that God has built and made for us. I want to give you a few examples of how I try to treat my body. First, I do push-ups. You can see this image behind me. Yep, that's me doing my push-up routine. I like to run. You can see me, yep, that's me finishing a marathon. Uh, And then lastly, I eat well. You can see me uh, eating well as well. Uh, These are things I definitely do. I didn't Photoshop those late last night. Um, Take off, go back to the main slide. I do try to practice discipline in my own body, but instead of it looking like a Chris Hemsworth push-up scene, I'm playing pickleball with people like twice my age. But I do it often and I do it aggressively. Um, I don't eat celery only, but I do try to have seltzer and juice instead of soda. And I do try to skip my desserts. Just little incremental things. We don't have to be superheroes, but we do need to steward the bodies God has given us. It's much bigger than just our actual physical health. But what does it look like to steward these bodies well? We live in a world where the body is, I think, at the same time extremely overvalued and also undervalued at the same time. We see a bunch of TikTok fitness influencers who all seem to disagree with each other. Am I supposed to eat eggs? Am I not supposed to eat eggs? Am I supposed to focus on my macros or am I just doing calisthenics? How does this work? Where does it move? None of you agree with each other. Grubhub food deliveries make it now so easy to eat without ever thinking of it, without ever getting my hands dirty, without ever realizing that the meat I'm eating comes from a living animal that somebody had to kill for my benefit. We're disconnected in many ways from the realities of our body and why God has given them to us and at what cost. The insane rate that we live in of internet pornography, it's deep connection to sex trafficking around the world. And how do we think about our bodies or the bodies of other people? 
Struggle with body image issues. It's not just a, a female problem. I do distinctly remember five years ago, there was a picture of Zac Efron circling around on the internet as he now is approaching 30. And he's still in phenomenal shape. And they had a picture up of him where he didn't look like he did when he was 20, but still looked amazing. And people were like, oh, dad bod. And I remember all these dads saying, what dad has that bod? What is this body now? How do I feel about this? These are the disillusionments and the struggles and disconnects we're walking through. Even as we talk about gender and body dysmorphia, what does it look like when we now are disconnecting our mind and our body, our soul and our flesh? How do we walk that journey holistically? Main point this morning as we walk through this is that you are a whole person. You are a body and a soul. You are given your body as an instrument for God's glory and to love others. Instead, we often use it for our own glory and for the love of self. How do we realign around this? We're going to go all over Scripture, as Sammy has already said this morning. We're going to begin as early as we can in Genesis chapter 1. And this is where we'll start. The body is an instrument of worship, not an object of worship. It is an instrument we use to give glory to God. It is not something that we honor and worship in and of itself. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. I'll be reading in the NLT. There are Bibles under you if you want to read along outside of your digital device. Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. Now, you could preach about a dozen sermons from that passage alone. I've often fiddled with the idea of doing an entire year just on this passage, and you take it all the directions it can go and where God leads us from this. But this morning, we'll use it to ground us in three things about our body that I think are crucial, are elemental, and are divinely given to us. The first thing I want to say from Genesis chapter 1 is that you are created. We are created beings. You're created. I'm created. That means you are not a mistake. You were made on purpose, with purpose. God made you because he wanted you to exist, and you have matter and are important. I remember praying for a student, uh, neuroatypical, when I was a youth pastor, somewhere on the spectrum. And praying for this student, I was acutely aware of I had been in services in our tradition. We believe in divine healing. And when it comes to these matters, sometimes it's difficult to discern what is something that is broken that needs to be healed, and what is something that is diverse that needs to be celebrated? 
I have not established a clear answer yet on where those spectrums overlap and how to differentiate, but I had acutely, as I was praying for this young person, I remembered a service I had been in just a year earlier where the pastor talked about his son who was neuroatypical and praying for him and him being healed from it and celebrating that and how he had changed and been transformed. It was a big testimony for them as a family. And as I prayed for this young man, all these thoughts were going through my head of, does he need to be healed? What is God? And I just said, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me to pray over this young man? And what I distinctly remember God speaking to me in that moment is to speak over him. I have made him on purpose. He is not a mistake to celebrate in the beauty of who he is. I just prayed that. That's what I prayed. Does that mean that's the answer for every single person? No, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. But what it does mean is you exist on purpose. God made you on purpose. No human being is a mistake. And nothing about you is a mistake. We live made in God's image. We live in a fallen world. We do have fallen bodies that get sick and die. But no one is a mistake. Our God is intentional and on purpose. Second, it means you are unique. You are the only you. You are the snowflake falling from the sky. All those imagery we use. But you are unique and important for that. There are nearly 8 billion people on the planet right now, but no one else is like you. In a particular nation, I won't name it, but a lot of data has been shared that there is a particular ideal version of a woman. And everyone aspires to be like that woman. The internet has really created this, particularly social media. And so they say anywhere as much as 10 to 12% of all women in that country look almost exactly the same. And so when you're dating someone, you're like, you look just like the last person. They look just like the last, because they're all trying to attain this ideal. And plastic surgery is cheap there. And so everybody's moving and altering themselves and trying to change and work it. And there's literally a story of a man who sued his wife because they had children and the children looked nothing like his wife. And he said, wait a minute, this is not what you actually looked like, discovering she had altered and changed and a whole crazy insanity. There is no ideal person. There's no ideal physical specimen of a human. Yes, Chris Hemsworth does exist and that's good for him. But if we lived in the 14th century, he would be, you know, a non-valued worker out in the field demonstrating his lack of worth by his muscles and his jawline. And we'd be affirming the person who's softer and gentler. Human beings have defined what is ideal back and forth and back and forth throughout all of history. God has no ideal human being other than connection into the internal soul of who he made us to be, to live in his image. Your height, your body frame, your eyes, your hair, the funny way that you walk. It is you, and that is all right. Third, you are not self created. You didn't make yourself. Your parents had a role to play in it, but as scripture says, God knit us together. You are not the sole party in defining who you are and what you do with this body that God has given you. We don't have 100% self-autonomy to say what my life will be and who I will be. And that doesn't mean other people get to tell you, but it does mean God has a role and a work and a say in who we are and what we do with our lives, including our body. And it is a tough part. Biblically, it is the question and the moment theologically and philosophically if we have autonomy to define who we are with our bodies. 
Do I get to say who I am and what I will be and how I will change that? Hot topics in almost every pastoral meeting I go to, any time I speak at a college campus, this question is asked of me afterwards. This is the question. This is not a sermon about this, but I will say three things briefly. I do believe and I understand that gender and biology are different things and that culture has defined gender a lot of different ways. Biology is physical. I also say if you tell me a pronoun to call you, I'll call you that pronoun because I believe that Christians are called to be kind and loving and humble. But I will also say, I do believe we are not the sole factor of defining who we are and what our body is. I believe that God has a say in who we are and who we are made to be. And I believe in the process of knowing who we are and what gender we are and how we use our sexuality. God and the scriptures he has given us have an important role to play in defining and curating and guiding us forward to be image bearers of God. I think rather than trying to solve issues of our soul by beginning with our body, we need to begin with our soul and ask God to work in us and transform us. And this is true beyond gender and sexuality. Second main point from this passage in Genesis, you are created in the image of God. You're made like him, by him, to honor him. God is our pattern for our body and life. Jesus is our pattern for body and life. And please, please, as we talk about this, be encouraged by the fact that Jesus ate a lot Food was like his main symbol and his main object lesson was about food and celebrating food together. He also walked a lot. That might be a product of the culture he's in, but he took care of his body and he enjoyed what God had given him. It wasn't a burden to overcome. It was something to enjoy and to celebrate. This also means by being made in the image of God that we are made for a purpose and a partnership We have a purpose and we have a partnership. We are made not just to do whatever we want with our bodies and our sexuality, with our stomachs and our minds, but God has a purpose for us. And that is to glorify him in the created world and to love his people that he has made around us. And when we are using our bodies with how we eat or think about others or what we do in our own sexuality to ask the question, am I glorifying God and am I loving his people? Oftentimes I think that this can help us to avoid a whole lot of other problems in our lives and a lot of debates by asking the question of am I glorifying God by my actions and my decisions and am I loving the people he has put around me? What this also means is you are not a wild beast. We're not wild flesh bags following all of our whims of our body. Yeah, you're hungry for that. Yeah, you're tired in that. Combine both and you're hangry right now. That is all right. That happens. But it is not all that we are. Our body doesn't control us. We are not a mindless creature just following our evolutionary patterns. We are made on purpose, with a purpose, by the God who has created us. The body works with the soul. You have control over this body. The Apostle Paul has written many things about this in the New Testament. That when it feels like the body has gained control over us, my stomach or my mind or my sexuality is now running the ship of who I am. He says it is time for spiritual disciplines to realign yourself again. It is time for Lent. It is time for fasting. It is time for Sabbath. It is time for meditation. 
The third thing I believe Genesis tells us is your body is very good. Before we dive into this, I want to clarify because I don't want anybody quoting this incorrectly afterwards, online, or in person. I am not saying, and don't tell someone, Pastor Brian said I have a very good body. That is not what I'm saying. I never said that. I said your body is very good. Scripture said that. Not me. God creates and he says it's good. God puts stars in place. He says it's good. He makes fish and he makes animals. He says it's good. He makes mountains and he says it's good. Then he creates human beings out of the dust of the earth and his own breath and he says this is very good. Your body is not a shameful thing. And for many of us in the room, I want to say that again, your body is not a shameful thing to avoid to manipulate, to try and get out of. I believe that for many of us, we have lived under that for many, many years. Our body is a shameful thing. I don't look like the other person, or I feel shame that I might tempt another person, or I look too much like, or not enough like. Your body is made good and for a good purpose. Second, what that means is that your body, as Genesis 1 tells us, is the pinnacle of creation. The human body, the human brain, the human heart, our ability to think and feel and care for others is the pinnacle of all God has made. If you ask God to look around at all of creation and to look at a black hole and a quasar and Mount Everest and a blue whale and to say, God, what is your favorite thing that you created? What is the best thing that you have created? He will say, is a human being. They bear my image and they are the pinnacle of all that I have made. God spent time around humanity walking. Jesus has a body. He chose to put on flesh. And the resurrection is designed to save our bodies. Third and final of this point, your body is an instrument of worship, not an object of worship. When it comes to this, the main thing for us as humans is really our stomach and our sexuality when it comes to this. I am a pastor in a holiness tradition congregation, and that means um, drinking is normally not very popular. So what it does mean whenever I go to a pastoral conference, for some reason, fried food, not a problem. And so we eat like crazy, and there's giant meals, and no one seems to care that at a pastor's conference, all these illustrations of fast food and eating more. And I sometimes think to myself, is this not a part of it? If I die of heart disease, that's not a sin. But if I die of liver disease, that is. And how are we aligning this? When we worship our body for coping mechanisms, to cope from the sins and struggles of what we live in this world with, food can do that, absolutely. Sleeping can do that, absolutely. Technology can do that, absolutely. Sexuality is one of the most powerful abilities to distract ourselves from our actual emptiness or what God is trying to speak and do through us. Pornography is the greatest tool of the modern era to do that, to distract us and to numb us away from who God has called us to be. There are generations of young men and women growing up with their minds warped from a reality of what the human body is like and what it should be. And I can tell you because I do premarital counseling and I get questions from men sometimes where I can immediately go, you are watching pornography. That question, I immediately know. You are warped in how you are viewing this. 
And to be clear, when it comes to the sex industry, for those who are struggling with pornography, my office is always open. My email is there. It will stay between us. We will pray this and walk this through. I have done it with literally dozens of men, myself included, throughout my 20s. There is freedom on the other side of it. But I want to encourage you, if you think this is not hurting anyone, I will tell you that the pornography industry is the number one driver of the sex trade industry that many experts say is the largest movement of enslaved human beings in all of history. It's tied to sexuality. Let's move forward into something more positive. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. The psalmist writes this about their body. As Sammy has already read to us, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every movement was laid out before a single day has passed. I want to take three things from this briefly. Be body body positive. Celebrate it. God's given it to you. It's a beautiful thing. Thank God for having a body positive, unashamed view of the created body is important. God made your body. Jesus has a body. And the resurrection is the most pro-body theological position ever existing. It means your body is important and matters. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, what was it about if it wasn't about that our bodies matter and exist? It is Gnosticism, an ancient heresy, to believe that my soul is more important than my body. It is not. I am one thing, body and soul together. And the resurrection is the declaration of that, that Jesus Christ resurrected, not his soul and left his body behind, not some spiritualized version of him, but he took his body with him. And how do we know that? The scars from his death remained on his body. And he promises us, our bodies matter. You matter. Everything about you, your quirky, weird little sense of humor, your personality of how you organize things, those matter to God and will be resurrected. If you want a beautiful illustration and exploration of this, Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 15. Go and read it later. It is wonderfully empowering. But second, body discipline is equally as important. Be body positive, but don't let your body control your life. Your body has a purpose, and it is to glorify God and love his people. Remember that we are made with a purpose. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 speaks to this. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Another later adaption has mind as well. What he's saying is your soul, yeah, okay, I get that. But then two-thirds of this is my body. I should love the Lord God with my body. What are we doing with our bodies, our minds, our hearts? How do we submit them to the Lordship of Christ and say, this is who I am. Use me for your glory. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end of this message. Third, bodily worship. To come back to it again, the body is an instrument of worship, not an object of worship. 
This applies to how we eat, how we exercise, the sleep we get, and what we do with the intimate, vulnerable nature of sexual desire. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. When we get out of alignment with this, what do we do? How do I, how do I realign? I do believe that fasting, the regular practice of abstaining from what my body wants, is one of the tools the church has given us in order to realign my body and soul back together when they have drifted. Fasting as a tool for body-soul alignment. This is one of the tools God has given us. Fasting, if you've never practiced it before, I encourage you, Lent is a great, easy, well, relatively easy, communal way of entering into fasting. Six 24-hour periods that we're all doing and encouraging together you can do 24 hours if you physically can't because of medical issues um, or whatnot. That's fine. That's understanding that. But we can make little adjustments or a meal here or the way and what we eat. But align your body and your soul. Psalm 35 says, Yet when they were ill, I grieved for them. I denied myself by fasting for them. But my prayers returned unanswered. I was sad as though they were my friends or family, as if I were grieving for my own mother. If you've ever grieved, lost someone close to you deeply, lost a relationship that was close and painful, or lost an opportunity, a dream, a job that was close and painful to lose it, what's one of the distinctives we go through in grief? We stop eating, right? My stomach just doesn't feel like it. Can't do it. It doesn't look good to me in this period of time. I've had people be like, I'm never going to eat like that ever again. I'm like, just, it'll pass. Your grief will pass and you'll be back over there again. But in those moments of grief, a natural reaction is fasting. So what God says is there is always something to grieve in this world. There are. There are human beings suffering. There are tragedies happening. And there is always the cost and the pain of sin working its way throughout creation. To fast is to remind ourselves in our flesh that there is suffering in this world, that Christ has not yet redeemed all of creation. There is still suffering and loss, and it realigns us back Sometimes for us in the Western world of how very good we have it and how rarely we actually suffer and it draws it back into realigning our body and our soul. Second thing it does is it aligns our lives with the lives of others. It happens in Isaiah. It happens in Nehemiah. It happens in Daniel. They are grieving for sins and struggles, not their own. Daniel's one of the best examples. He begins to fast and pray over the suffering and loss of his people. He's never even met. He's not been in his land for, since he was a child. And he's joining together. They've changed his name in Babylon. He's living a different life. And yet in fasting, he's being reminded that he's part of a community. And that his life and other lives are interconnected. In fasting, you may be fasting and praying for someone else other than you. You may be fasting and praying for the community that God has put around you. You may be fasting and praying for the general sin and suffering of the world. Fasting aligns our lives with others. 
few things about fasting practice, just really practical. We've said this a lot during Lent, but I think it doesn't get taught enough, so it's okay to be labored a little bit. Maddie did a phenomenal job in this video today. Fasting, biblically, the pattern primarily is food, is to fast from food because our stomachs are connected to our bodies and it realigns us. Fasting in Scripture is typically 24 hours. It's a 24-hour period, water only typically. Fasting is to remind us of those who are suffering. Fasting is to align our body and soul. And fasting in a very practical sense is to make time for God. When I'm not eating or spending time around food, I spend that time leaning in to God's presence. All right, lastly this morning, what do we do then with our body? How do I worship God with my body? What does that look like then? Besides the discipline aspect, what am I supposed to do? What does it look like? Your body as an instrument of worship. As we follow Jesus, we learn to honor and not be controlled by our physical bodies. Not so that we live in fear of self-punishment, but so that we are glorifying God with our bodies. This is the model of Jesus. Jesus, who touched and embraced people physically with his arms and with his hands and with his tears. He bent down and he washed his disciples' feet, a very physical and intimate practice. He allowed a woman to, on her knees, wash his feet with her hair, with perfume. And when others tried to correct her, he said, no, let her do this. The physical connection to our body and our soul. It is God who gave us our bodies. And he has made us each unique. You have giftings. I do not. I may have giftings. You do not. It's wonderful to have Pastor Frank here because it's such a great illustration that we have very different giftings and very different personalities. I'm the one when an issue comes up that I'm like, well, let's read about it. Let's see if we study a little more, if we can discover what it, and Frank is like, well, let's just do it and actually be with the people and we're going back and forth with each other, but it makes us better to have one another. You make us better. We make each other better because when we talk about body, it's not individual bodies. That's not the only body that scripture talks about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses the body as an image for the church. He says the church is a body, one unified body, the body of Christ actually on earth. And this is what he has to say in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to this body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, 
Every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. It is such a powerful passage for the church, particularly, I think, these last three years. There's been a lot of moments where we have had the opportunity or the option to say, hey, I've been a part of this, but I'm just, I'm pulling back. There are some things about the church or evangelical church I am not into anymore, and I just want to, I'm going to do my own thing. And I think what Paul would say is, if you're still calling on Christ, you're still a part of this. You're just a part of this that's choosing not to be functioning in and with the body. And that includes the ear that hears or the mouth that calls out. We need to be challenged by each other, not to be driven apart. There are people who can stand on stage and preach. That's a gifting. But if all of us were preachers, this church would have no money at all and it would all flow away everywhere. If we were all organized people, there'd be people on the periphery who are like, I just want someone to listen. And we'd be like, that's good, but here's what you should do. And here are the steps for it. We need each other and the diversity of our personalities. God knows that. And that's why he made us so different. It says, individually, we are not the image bearers of God. Communally, we bear the image of God. We are the image of God. And that means without each other, we are incomplete in demonstrating to the world the image of God. Without each other, we are incomplete in sharing the message of Jesus. Without each other, to put it in Pennington AG terms, we are incomplete in leading people to Jesus without each other. We need one another. To bring this message full circle, this does mean if you are struggling in one of these areas, and these areas are massively prevalent, have massive implications for who we are and how we deal with this. And I know I just flew through some things that are complicated and deep. Reach out, talk to somebody. Talk to your small group leader. Confess sin, ask questions, walk through it together. It is important that we bring all of ourselves to Christ and that we submit all of ourselves to his lordship. And that includes our body. But as we do so, know that we need you. We need you. We need you to get it right. We need you to confess and repent. We don't need you to be perfect, but we need you to be recognizing what Christ is doing, and we need to do the journey together. As we close out this service, there are spiritual gifts. There's like almost three dozen of them, so I'm not going to walk through them today. But there are gifts that are public-facing. Someone can prophesy or speak in tongues or preach from the stage. There are internal and, and more private gifts like administration or compassion, patience. These are all gifts God has given to us. And I want you to know just one thing as we close. Oftentimes we think about the spiritual gifts as like a special little like prize God gives us when we come to him. Like, you know, I'm a very quiet person and I come to Jesus and he's like, now you are a loud prophesying person. And I'm like, thank you. I was never this before. And now I will be. That's not typically how it works. It can be. But most of the time, God has already put those gifts in you. You're already demonstrating them in different aspects of your life. The Holy Spirit comes into you and it elevates and it activates them. And it gives you a purpose for them. You're really funny. 
awesome. Help us with announcement videos. Come and share things from the stage. Share the gospel. Lead in places. You're super organized. Oh man, we desperately need you on the finance team. And when I talk to you about it, don't try to like push the conversation away. We need you on these teams organized. You have the giftings. I'm betting you already know what your giftings are, but you just need the Holy Spirit to put his hand on your shoulder and say, yeah, this is you. Let me empower and activate this aspect of yourself. So we have closing out. I'm not going to open the altars this morning. Instead, what we have is in the lobby as you leave, there are going to be five tables out there. Those five tables represent each of the teams that make Sunday mornings and our weekly ministry happen. Production, worship, kids ministry, youth ministry, and guest experience. All five use different aspects of your giftings. If you are not serving on a team at Pennington AG Church yet, um, we just, we want you. We want the giftings God has put in you. You make us better serving wherever you can and using the gifts God has given you. And so I'm gonna give you a minute or two to just pray and invite the Holy Spirit to point out where God has gifted you and what he can use in you and through you. And then I'm gonna invite you into the lobby Meet with someone, service. If you already serve on a team, use this as a moment to celebrate that team. Encourage others into it. Welcome them in if they're serving. But try not to rush out. I know lunch is coming and it's there and you may be ready for your Sunday afternoon nap. I usually am. But I want you to, for a moment, discipline the body. I say, I'm going to be praying and searching what God wants to do in me and through me for his mission of leading people to him. Take a moment. Allow me to pray over you. If you bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to in this moment, if you're in the room and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want to give you one brief opportunity to take a step forward in that relationship, to know him and to invite him in. As we talk about the body, there is a plan through Christ Jesus to save our bodies and our souls for all eternity through Christ Jesus. If you're not confident in that promise, I want to give you a chance just to pray this prayer with me. If you are a follower of Jesus, use it as a moment of recommittal. Jesus, in this moment, I recognize you as Savior, as God, as Lord. I believe that you came on this earth and you lived fully God and fully man. That you lived a perfect life, fully embodied, fully connected with the Father in love and mercy and grace and righteousness and truth. Jesus, I believe that you took my sin and my death onto your own shoulders on the cross. You paid my price for sin and death. You died. And on the third day, you conquered sin and death through the resurrection. And that by your resurrection, I could have eternal life and freedom from sin in you. You gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Whether you prayed that for the first time this morning or whether you prayed it for the hundredth, I want to give you just one more minute this morning to invite the Holy Spirit to draw out of you where is he gifted you, where is he working and moving in your body, and where can he use you to move the gospel of Jesus forward. Just take one minute, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you before we head out into the lobby.